0: Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The midterm elections are over, and I spent the first few weeks of October in Georgia, Texas, and the Northeast, making a documentary for BBC Radio 4 called The Democrats' Dilemma, which follows this little intro. FRDH stands for First Rough Draft of History, and I wonder how you think this program stands up as a first draft. But since most of the results have been counted, here are a few things I would add to this doc. First, it was women. It's a straight line from the Million Women March, which I attended, to the organizers in an Atlanta suburban parking lot, who you will hear. The people they had to persuade were other women, the ones who hated Hillary more than they hated Trump. And clearly they persuaded enough of them. Are these prodigal daughters now permanently inside the Democratic tent? And will their menfolk ever see the light? To answer that question, partially, so long as Trump remains president, the women will vote Democrat. He is undoubtedly a distaff vote loser for the GOP. But the Democratic leadership needs to follow Richard Parker's advice, which you will hear in the documentary. They need to nominate for president someone who is authentic. Second, the glue that holds the Republican Party together is made up of two main elements racism and cynicism. Now, most people in my social networks obsess about racism. They don't pay attention to the cynicism. Racism is a subset of stupidity, and I'm not sure you can do much about that. However, cynics can be shamed or bribed, and they can change their views. I base this claim on an evening spent with the wine club of Del Rio, Texas. Del Rio is on the Mexican border, and the wine club members were all Republicans. They were smart, successful entrepreneurs, and many owned maquiladoras a few miles inside Mexico. They know exactly what Donald Trump and Ted Cruz are, and they were voting for them. Loyal, however? Loyal they were not. So they can be changed. Third, the same op-ed people who have been wrong for so long will be at it again, dicing and splicing the result to say the Democrats should run to the center— Beto could have won if he trimmed the middle, is the thesis of a particularly meretricious article in Politico. But it's wrong. The energy in the Democratic Party, the reason for the turnout beyond hating Trump, is that many, many candidates were unabashedly progressive. The Clinton wing is dead. Done. It's over. And the Clinton should graciously retreat. There will be no restoration. Fourth, And finally, the task ahead. After taking a shellacking in the first quarter and a half, gotta mix those football metaphors in here, after taking a shellacking in the first quarter and a half, the Democrats go into halftime with the wind at their backs. They're pulling even on the scoreboard. But they're still behind. Nothing is won. Coaches need to get their units together and re-scheme for the next half and then get the whole team together and remind them that nothing is won yet, the game is in the balance, and now is not the time to think, we've got this. Dems have won nothing out of the ordinary. They're on historical trend for a midterm election. They need to think hard about where the extra 1.5% of votes will come in Texas so that a Beto can win next time. And one other thing, we have to be vigilant. As I post this, the Georgia governor's race and Gina Ortiz-Jones race for Congress, both of which are part of the dock, are still being decided. Count those votes. Anyway, I won't come back after the documentary is over, so let me thank you now for listening and urge you to visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, where you can contact me. Let me know whether you think this rough draft will stand the test of time, and please make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. If enthusiasm was all it took, the Democrats would win this election in a walk.
1: So When
2: public education is under attack,
0: what do we do? Stand up, like that. In local, state, and federal elections, the volunteers are being G'd up.
2: All right, is everybody ready? Yes. yes. All right, this is game on. Game on. All right? Yeah, it's for real, folks.
0: The message from Wisconsin to Tennessee, from Georgia to Texas, is vote. If the government is the people, and the people are the government
1: then it's incumbent on every single one of us to get out there and vote. You all ready to
0: witness? If that enthusiasm had been present two years ago, perhaps Donald Trump would not be president now. But with Trump in the White House, the Democrats are not letting this crisis go to waste. But beyond being the not-Trump party, what do the Democrats stand for? how in a country more divided than at any time in the last 50 years, and possibly longer than that, how can they persuade non-partisans to cross over and give Democratic candidates their
3: votes? It is true that polarization in the United States is a threat to our democracy, and I wouldn't say threatens to, has broken politics.
0: John Ossoff was just... 29, when he was narrowly defeated as the Democratic candidate for Congress in last year's special election in Georgia's 6th district. The race was seen as an early test of Trump's popularity in the suburbs. Ossoff raised more than $20 million in small donations. His opponent, Karen Handel, had a war chest of more than $30 million—$50 for a single congressional seat— Much of the Republicans' money came from secretive big-money donors and was spent on attack ads that painted the soft-spoken Ossoff, who has a master's degree from LSE, into a hardcore revolutionary.
4: Liberal extremists will stop at nothing to push their radical agenda. Now they're turning their attention to
0: Georgia and demanding that you vote for John Ossoff for Congress. John Ossoff is one of them.
3: Most people are just fed up with the nonsense of politics and want public servants who deliver results rather
5: than bickering endlessly among themselves.
0: This may be true at a granular level, but it doesn't seem to have an effect at election time. Barack Obama's appeals to unity and the better angels of Americans' nature seems to have been one that only he could make. Ossoff tried, came close, but not close enough. The Democratic Party has yet to find a message that clicks in a divided country where many are still suffering from PTSD induced by the crash of 2008. The Democratic Party's national leadership hasn't quite figured out that we are beginning a new era, not just because of Donald Trump, according to Richard Parker, lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Parker is a 50-year veteran of Democratic campaigns. He thinks party leaders like Nancy Pelosi, who spoke recently at the Kennedy School, have missed a critical point.
3: I heard her reintroduce the phrase, a better deal for America. And this is actually a market-tested, focus-group-examined uh, phrase that they paid corporate advisors to give them. And it seems to me that it's exactly the wrong sort of message because it makes us sound like a grocery store offering a sale on cauliflower, a better deal at Safeway or Sainsbury's or wherever. And the Democratic Party cannot seem to escape where it was carried 30 years ago by a neoliberal move to the right that they saw as the only way of regaining power in a long Reagan-esque conservative era. That era, for the most part, is coming to its own end, even with Donald Trump at the helm today. The last
0: 90 years of American politics can roughly be divided into two eras. The Democratic New Deal, which ran 40 years from 1933, when Franklin Roosevelt became president, till 1973, when the Arab oil embargo put massive inflation in place that was only bled out of the economic system with the election of Ronald Reagan and his hardcore free market anti-union policies an event the Democratic Party is still trying to respond to.
6: The dilemma is largely one of Democrats' own making.
0: Jill Lepore, Harvard professor of history and author of the current bestseller, These Truths, A History of America.
6: The contemporary moment represents a crisis for a liberal view of politics, broadly speaking, not of liberal as in liberal versus conservative, but just of liberalism itself.
0: Arguably, the last great success of the 40-year-long New Deal era was the passage of civil rights legislation in the 1960s. Rights, rather than policies, became the Democratic Party's focus as their power waned in the 1970s. This was a mistake, says Professor Lepore.
6: What happens to the Democratic Party is that what had been successful in the civil rights movement, in terms of actually securing rights, were not passage of new laws, but was in fact court decisions. So beginning with Brown v. Board in 1954, liberals decide that the way to confront, the the way to advance rights causes is to go to the courts. And they increasingly abdicate local and state elections. I mean, it's a very, very, very slow development. Like if we could just convince people uh, that this position is the right one by haranguing them about it, we don't need to win elections, we'll just go right to the courts and the courts rule in our favor and we'll control, we'll control the courts through public opinion. Uh, this is a fairly short-sighted strategy in terms of the rule of law and in terms of democratic process, as I think now has become obvious to a lot of, a, a, lot, a lot of partisans, but it's very difficult to undo what has been done.
0: There was one other strategic error made by the party as the New Deal era gave way to Ronald Reagan's conservatism in the late 1970s.
6: The Democratic Party essentially makes a decision in that same era that if they're going to lose white men to the Republican Party, they're going to really try to pull white women away from the Republican Party. And so some of the gender fissuring between the two parties now that has only recently become deeply visible, but I think was part of the discussion in 2016, uh, has origins that go back to that early 1970s realignment.
0: The problem with that strategy is a simple one. Women don't vote as a bloc.
6: Women vote with the men and their families. They vote with their families, they vote with their ethnic groups, they vote with their neighborhoods, they vote the way everybody else votes. They don't vote as women.
0: But then along came Donald Trump. And in this midterm election, it is female energy driving the Democratic Party forward.
7: You know what? We're gonna win.
2: We're going to be here, we're going to do what matters, and we're going to be where we need
0: to be. On a sweltering Saturday morning in a suburban Atlanta office, Zara karanchek is giving a pep talk to a couple of dozen volunteers about to go canvassing for her, she's running for the Georgia State Senate, and the Democrats' local congressional candidate, Carolyn Boudreau.
2: And we are going to make this happen. Do not give up. Do not give up. If you feel tired... Go look at a picture of your daughter, your granddaughter, your grandson, whoever you need to look at to reinvigorate yourself.
0: Karen Schack is being aided by a group of volunteers from Pave It Blue, a women's political advocacy group. Its campaigns director is Rebecca Sandberg.
2: So Pave It Blue is a grassroots activist organization that started after Trump was elected. We have about 5,500 women in the metro Atlanta area that are part of our group.
0: Having assembled the numbers, though, is not enough. It's a dilemma figuring out how to convey a message about Stacey Abrams, an African-American woman who is the party's candidate for governor, says Sandberg.
2: It's hard to tell what's going to work at this point. I mean, we, I think a lot of us think that if we could get the Obama magic back in 2008, he was able to reach voters that maybe weren't likely voters for him. But, you know, that time has passed as well. So I think we're, we're all trying to figure out what's going to work because turnout has been our big issue. So what's going to get people to turn out? What do they really care about? And that's what we're trying to figure out.
0: And the problem here is, because the Democrats for decades were less focused on state and local elections, they don't really have the data on the electorate they should have.
2: Georgia historically had um, somewhat of a sparse infrastructure. The The campaigns would have a lot of voter data. They'd go out and do their thing, and then the campaigns would be over, and we'd lose all of that traction.
0: So that that strikes me as a flaw in the Democrats' game if every other year there's an election, every other year good data, what disappears? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I think it's, I can speak to what it feels like in Georgia and in the South in particular, and it does feel that way, that we just continually start over, we have to go back to square one.
0: The problem was on display at a phone bank in Macon, Georgia, 80 miles south of Atlanta, where volunteers were trying to drum up support for Stacey Abrams.
6: Hello, is this Hattie Riddick? Is this the Riddick residence? I have the wrong number then, I'm
4: sorry. Thank you. Hello, is this Justin Miller? Uh, Are you his brother (laughs) or his dad, maybe? Well, Mr. Miller, my name is Jack Mahaney, and I'm volunteering on behalf of Stacey Abrams for governor, Sarah Riggs Amico for lieutenant governor, John Barrow for secretary of state, and Democrats all across Georgia. How's your Friday going?
0: The phone bankers' frustrations were palpable.
4: They think they're giving you a script that you can follow right down the line, and yeah. my limited experience so far today suggests that most calls just don't lend themselves to that. You really it, that's a kind of a spine, but you have to kind of react and Hello, is this Alexander Northover?
0: Jack Mahaney and Nana Cratteville are typical new Georgians, people from up north who moved south for work and warmth. They are lifelong Democrats and have a keen sense of what is wrong with the party.
7: They
6: actually get the votes. They're outmaneuvered politically. Now, if you look at the statistics for who actually wins popular votes, Democrats do.
0: So their dilemma, you would say, is that they've got to stop being outmaneuvered yes. when they are in the majority. Yes.
6: Well, I yes. mean,
4: Democrats have, have won the popular vote in every presidential election since 1992. Yeah. I mean, the, the Supreme Court put W on the, in the White House. It wasn't the popular vote. And the Electoral College, bigger, you know, strangenesses in the Electoral College put Trump in the White House.
0: Jack Mahaney has a point. In the recent fight to confirm Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, the Democratic senators who voted against Kavanaugh's confirmation actually have millions more voters than the Republican senators who voted to confirm. America is now in its second decade of being governed by a radical party representing a minority of voters. Democrats have not figured a way around this.
4: Republicans will tell you, well, it's a it's a center-right nation. No, no. it isn't. Mm-mm. The United States is a center-leftist kind of nation, and the fight in the de- Democratic Party right now is between, if I go back to the last election, between Hillary's people who want to be centrists and Bernie's people who want to be full-on progressive democratic socialists, and they can't decide yet where they want to go.
6: I would agree. Uh, I wouldn't label it Hillary and Bernie at this point. But I, I, don't disagree but I agree. Well. The basic struggle in the Democratic Party is between the centrists and the progressives. Count me on the progressive side. Right.
4: Yay.
0: The Democratic Party has long thought of itself as a big tent, but more recently has seemed like a patchwork quilt whose stitches are fraying. But in this midterm election, they are drawing energy from new blood, not just female, but also combat veterans. America has been at war since the turn of the millennium, and 62 Iraq and Afghanistan veterans with no prior experience of politics are standing for Congress as Democrats. Gina Ortiz-Jones, candidate for Texas's 23rd Congressional District, is one of them.
2: What do you
0: want to drink? Coffee? Yeah, please. Please. Coffee, Coffee is good. Please? Thank yeah, you. Yes, no yes. Breakfast time at El Rodeo de Jalisco Mexican restaurant in a strip mall on the outskirts of San Antonio, Texas. Gina Ortiz-Jones is explaining how she got into politics. Ten years ago, did you ever think you would be running for Congress?
7: Ten years ago, it was October two thousand eight, and I had just arrived to Germany. I was part of the initial team that was standing up U.S. Africa Command. So, no, political office was was not in my future, but public service is is has been so my future. So five
0: years ago, you hadn't thought about it either. No. When did you think about this?
7: Honestly. Um, The night of the election, I wanted to make sure that my community was well-represented, right? I knew, frankly, just based on how uh, Trump and his team had uh, run their campaign, um, it was clear that uh, my time in public service might need to be different. Um, Not only given my professional experiences, uh, you know, I've served in countries where women and minorities are targeted. I've served in countries where governments disregard for conflict of interest has hollowed out those countries. Um, and I see what happens when democratic institutions are under attack and when good people don't stand up. You know, we're also uh, about a mile and a half from my home. My community is exactly the types of communities that would serve to suffer the worst under some of these misguided policies.
0: Ortiz Jones was raised by a single mother who had emigrated to the U.S. from the Philippines. She is imbued with the immigrant drive to succeed.
7: My sister and I were raised uh, to be very cognizant of how lucky we were to be born in this country. Not We weren't smart to be born here. We were lucky to be born here.
0: In a time of labels, Ortiz-Jones is festooned with them. She's an Iraq War veteran, an out lesbian, a feminist.
7: I don't shy away from any of, of the things that I am. I'm a proud veteran. I'm a proud member of the LGBT community. I'm a proud member of this community, right?
0: But her community is only a small part of the Texas 23rd District, which runs from San Antonio to El Paso and then down to the Mexican border. 58,000 square miles, and yes, that is bigger than England and Wales combined.
7: You know, I have approached this as, again, with a public servant's mindset. You know, regardless of, while I am now, you know, running as a Democrat for 14 years working in national security, I never asked anybody what political party they were with because it did not matter. We were asked to do something in the interest of the country. How do we build the team to get that done? And how do we hold ourselves accountable if we fall short of what we've been asked to do? That's a public servant's mindset.
0: She upset the party establishment when she decided to give up her promising career at the Defense Intelligence Agency shortly after Trump's inauguration to get into politics. Were you headhunted by the party, or did you just kind of do it?
7: No, I did. I was not headhunted by the party at all. I actually uh, ran against the party candidate in the primary.
0: Did you get stick for that?
7: <laughs> uh, it is what it is.
0: Knowing what John Ossoff went through, I wondered how she felt about the prospect of attack ads being unleashed against her.
7: If there's anything I've learned from this, you can't teach class and you can't teach courage. We need people committed to doing the right thing, committed to, to protecting the Constitution, committing to serve the people, right? And that's not what we have right now. So, you know, look, if, if, if they're going to run these couple of attack ads against me, that's a small price to pay. The real price to pay, frankly, I was talking to a friend of mine in deciding to run, to, to run, because I also had to give up my federal career to do this. And she said, can you afford not to work for like 18 months or so? And I said, Honestly, the, the cost that I don't want to pay is several months from now, several years from now. The situation is much worse, and I have to look at myself in the mirror and ask myself, did you do everything you could do when your country needed you most? As fortunate as you have been, as much as your country community have invested in you, and what you've seen in other countries, did you do everything that you could do when your country needed you? And if the answer isn't yes, then you failed.
0: Texas is a good place to encounter another dilemma the Democrats face, Once upon a time in America, all politics really was local. Not anymore. Between well-funded national party bureaucracies and social media, politics is very much national, and it has the longtime Democratic judge of Uvalde County, William Mitchell, facing real competition.
5: It has not been that long ago that Uvalde County did not have a Republican primary, because we did not have the Republican candidates. The Republican Party, in a sense, has picked up some of the ideas, some of the issues, and they're carrying the issues forward that the Democratic Party did 15, 20 years ago.
0: What issues? Give me a, a specific.
5: The issues about jobs, the issues about keeping people busy, uh, You know, trying to keep America's building jobs here instead of sending them overseas. Although we do see jobs going away, which we did lose a plant here in Uvalde to foreign country, uh, did not make us happy.
0: The day before we met, the Dickies blue jean factory in Uvalde shut down. 156 workers lost their jobs. Despite Donald Trump's promises about keeping American manufacturing jobs in America, Dickies is setting up in Mexico and Honduras. That shouldn't affect voting for a local position like county judge, but the game has changed for Judge Mitchell.
5: You know, I've been in political office for over 40 years, and, and uh, I'm 70 years old. And the people that put me in office 40 years ago are not the same. They're not the same voter. So many of them have passed on. But also, there's a different philosophy about it. And you're right. Uh, if I were to Categorized. The voting base in my family, it would not be the same as it was, say, uh, that 40 years ago. You mean there's a generational shift in your household? There is a generational shift in my household. doesn't mean they won't vote for me, but I'm saying party-wise that, you know, if you, if you were to ask them, they probably would not be thinking the same as, uh, as we did 40 years ago. So they're Republicans? I didn't say... <laughs>
0: Mitchell advocates a non-tribal approach to politics. Vote the person, not the party. Those days are gone in America. He's being challenged by a Republican, a person who has been his friend since childhood.
5: Whenever my opponent called me and informed me that he was going to run as county judge, I simply asked him, and said, what have I done to, to cause you to run? What have I done to make you mad? And his answer was nothing. I said, well, then why are you doing this? Because and, and, uh, we're friends. And he says, well, that office needs to be red. And it, I, I thought, what do you mean, red? And he says, Republican. It, the office needs to be held by a Republican. I said, okay, so if you're telling me that if I had filed as a Republican, you would not be running against me? And he said, yes, that's correct.
0: The Republicans have been working to create what they call a permanent majority, or one-party state, right down to the office of county judge for more than a quarter of a century. During this period, the Democrats have been neglecting the local structures of party politics, relying on a particular demographic group, women, to win elections. Overcoming that mistake, leaving behind the idea that politics is local, negotiating the urban-rural divide, what is the biggest dilemma the Democrats face? The Kennedy School's Richard Parker puts it succinctly.
3: To combine a sense of a message with an even deeper sense of authenticity about the message and the messengers, that if you read the 2016 Democratic Party platform, I think any of us from 1968 would go, wow, this is this is a real step forward. This is much better platform than we've seen in years. In fact, it's a version of a, I hate to say this, a McGovern platform, because Hillary certainly didn't lose by the margins that... Uh, McGovern lost by, certainly, in the Electoral College, because she won in the popular vote. And yet, do I think that large numbers of Americans, let alone large numbers of Americans inclined to show up and vote for Democratic candidates, believes that this is the shared political agenda of the Democratic Party? No, I don't. But
0: Richard Parker has never seen Beto O'Rourke running a tight race against the Republican, Ted Cruz, for a seat in the U.S. Senate. Authenticity is what's behind O'Rourke's meteoric rise. In Texas, Democrats wear their patriotism on their sleeves as well as Republicans, Around 1,500 people have gathered at the Cypress Arena in suburban Houston for an afternoon rally for Beto. He's pretty much always called by his Spanish nickname. The excitement is palpable. For Beto supporters Mike and Mary Turin, the rally was a chance to show their true colors.
3: I'm we're the only ones on our street with a Beto sign in our front yard. <laughs>
2: so, you know, among uh, ours, We don't we never discuss politics, you know, <laughs> so it's hard oh, to... You,
0: just, is that a personal choice or is it just well, bad policy in this day and age to talk well, politics?
3: I think you can tell where some people lean or what to, they may be thinking. Right. Uh, you know, but we don't really... School,
2: I guess. You know, don't discuss politics and religion. You know, that's how we grew up. Oh, yeah. you know?
3: <laughs> it's, you know, but it's funny. But it's, also, it's, uh... it's
2: Texas, and Texas means Republicans. So, you know, if you're a Democrat, you're usually a closet Democrat. <laughs> Unfortunately.
0: Before heading on stage, Beto makes time for a couple of reporters. After holding a surprising lead in the early part of the race, O'Rourke is now running behind Ted Cruz.
1: This is perhaps the the last election that will really allow us to Um, preserve those things that are most important to this country, whether it's the decency with which we treat one another, the civility in public life, uh, the ability to remain a nation of laws and not of men, no matter how high the, the office or position of public trust that they hold.
0: I wondered how, in a country as divided as the U.S., he could find a message that might convince enough people from the Republican side to vote for him.
1: The only way to compete is to show up and we have been to each of the 254 counties and been to many of them many times over. I'll give you an example. Abilene, uh, so red that you can see it glowing from outer space. The first time we show up, maybe 25, 30 people come out in what is uh, you know, one of the most Republican counties in the nation. The, the fourth time we come out, 800 people show up. Republicans, Democrats, independents. Okay, I think we're going to head in and start the event. Thank you all for coming out. Really appreciate it. Yeah.
2: Thank you you very much.
1: Yeah. Where are you here from? London, BBC. I'm making a documentary about the Democrats.
0: Okay, right on. And then he was off to make his pitch.
1: If the government is the people, and the people are the government, then it's incumbent on every single one of us to get out there and vote. You all ready to
3: witness?
0: (laughs) In an America divided, The Democrats' greatest dilemma may be suppressing their natural desire to fight back against the bullying tactics of the Republican Party with bullying tactics of their own. But that's not what they should be doing, according to Harvard professor Jill Lepore.
6: I think that they have to figure out what they share with Republicans, frankly, in terms of the urgency of fortifying and refreshing civic institutions and protecting them against decay that has been chiefly the work of not partisans so much as extreme partisans, right? So we do have uh, an extremely disaffected young electorate, and we have an American population that has an understanding of democracy that is essentially ruled by Twitter rather than ruled by checks and balances and the franchise. I understand that what you're attempting to do is ponder the dilemma in particular of the Democratic Party. But I don't think in the long run, it's that different from the dilemma of the Republican Party, which is these two parties have all but destroyed the American political system. And if they can't lead and help repair it, they should get out of the way.